All right. Thank you so much, Dan and Alan, uh, for coming on, on the podcast with me, Luis Ramirez, on the Conversation Podcast. Well, Negotiation Tribe, I see that you're wearing a hashtag a shirt that has a hashtag shirt. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the Negotiation Tribe? Introduce yourself, Dan, and then we can move on to, uh, to Alan. Well, I'm Dan Oblinger, and uh, I'm a member of the Negotiation Tribe, and I am also a hostage negotiator by trade and by the grace of God. It's a great job. And right. also, uh, I'm a consulting negotiator, I like to say. So I coach negotiations for people in the business world. Uh, we do workshops and, and speaking uh, engagements as well. I really specialize in um, the up close and personal edge of negotiations, especially active listening and asking good questions. I've written a couple books on that and I've spoken internationally as a keynote speaker on that topic. So uh, I am married, I've got six kids, and I live in the prairie of the Midwest part of the United States. And I am the court-appointed guardian ad litem and uh, probation officer for Alan Zhang. <laughs> that last part may not be true, but it sure feels like it. <laughs> All right, Alan, uh, get introduced yourself, sir. Well, my name is Alan Zhang, and I've been... Uh coaching negotiation for the last 13 or 14 years now as full-time. So by day, that's what I do. Uh, I coach negotiation. I work with entrepreneurs and professionals and I help them excel in negotiation. I help them build strong agreements, build strong uh, negotiation culture and help them get more of what they want without having to make unnecessary compromises. And then uh, by night, I do the same thing, but on the other side of the of the globe, right? I work with uh, Asian companies over there and professionals. Okay, I thought you were gonna say by night you're uh, you're transforming yourself into a uh, you know like a superhero or something. But, oh, by uh, night I'm a, I'm a crappy Photoshop uh, artist. <laughs> <laughs> that checks out, Luis. That checks out. <laughs> so Dan, you mentioned you uh, in your introduction that you did uh, write some books. They're called Life or Death: Listening and also the Twenty Eight Laws of Listening. Can you highlight a little bit what those books are about? Uh, it's about authentic listening because that's what we all need. And uh, the first one that I wrote, Life or Death Listening, uh, Hostage Negotiators, How to Guide to Mastering the Essential Communication Skill is kind of a primer for building a great habit of listening. But it's nuts and bolts, and it just talks about some techniques that we use as hostage negotiators and how I've learned to use them globally, like business world, personal life. And I do tell some stories to highlight the importance of really foundational principles. And then I wrote the 28 Laws of Listening because I realized there wasn't enough to just talk about knowledge and say, hey, here's good listening. The 28 Laws of Listening is a four-week program where you learn, you go a little deeper with how to listen well, and then you get a homework assignment for that day to go out and encounter another valuable human and have a listening opportunity with them. So, nice. yeah, both are, I think they're great. And I'm totally biased, so you know, buyer <laughs> beware. Okay. Caveat emptor. <laughs> that's okay. I've I've also written some books myself, and I think you have to be like that, right? But before we get into uh, deeper into negotiations, uh, current events, man. There's a lot of things going on in the world, uh, but let's just focus uh, on Seattle uh, because I know that you're a hostage negotiator, and also Alan as well as a, as a is, is a negotiator as well. Uh, the things that are happening in Seattle uh, right now, obviously, we see where the uh, the citizens have pretty much, you know, quote unquote, uh, surrounded some of the law enforcement uh, facilities over there, pretty much just kind of taking some type of quote unquote control. Uh, obviously, I'm not asking for advice for, from either of you, but just kind of like what 
based on what's going on from your observation, uh, uh, what have you seen? And I mean, what, what do you what do you make of the state of the Seattle's of the United States right now? If you don't mind me asking. Well, Luis, what uh, what if we thought a little bigger here too? So let's do it. I mean, do I'm it. a natural fit, but I want to bring Alan in because I think Hong Kong is a wonderful primer for this, and Alan is a man who has his fingers on the pulse of Hong Kong. He does business there. He travels there. He's got family there. Um, he has a deep connection. You know, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, Dan. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, the, the first time we, we had you on, on the on the podcast, Dan, uh, we spoke a little bit of Hong Kong. And there was a letter that you wrote to the Hong Kong protesters, I believe it was. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Uh, but in that letter, you pretty much you, you you outlined things that they should be considering, which is kind of the uh, I guess the, the question that I have for e- either one of you as far as with the Seattle's of the United States, based on what Dan just pretty much just highlighted with your expertise, your experience in the Hong Kong protests and things that are going on right now with uh, the city, the Seattle's of the U.S. Well. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna talk about it in terms of very high level because there's no way I can know all the insight about what's going on. Even though while I was in Hong Kong, I have uh, friends in, in, in the police uh, department, got to chat with them. And then I have friends that um, were somewhere close to the front lines of the protest. And I got to hear their point of view and what they wanted. And it's easy to see the same set of circumstances and fact and uh, interpret it completely differently from both sides. Um, and the narratives that they 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 uh, subscribe to can be so in opposition to each other that it can escalate. So, from a from a conflict resolution point of view, from a peace studies, uh, it is key to have a very high level mission and purpose that both sides can agree to. It may not be every everything that they want. Um, and this is where good leadership comes in, having the ability to uh, create a sense of calmness, to slow things down and calm down the emotions. Because once emotions get to a certain point, uh, both parties are functioning on a fight or flight mode. And it benefits no one because that would just escalate into violence, especially any group that is feeling trapped or feeling threatened, uh, our, our natural response is self-preservation. Doesn't matter how much training you get sometimes, it's hard to avoid that. So uh, it falls down to good leadership uh, and giving people a sense of uh, calmness that the leadership is gonna look into the problem, that they're willing to listen to, to the problem and not uh, brush it aside or be dismissive. I think, I think a good leadership here is key. What do you think, Dan? I think uh, I've come to believe that negotiation in the way that Alan and I understand it and the way that we coach it and, and teach it is the opposite of violence. So if negotiation is the opposite of, of violence, we should be looking for opportunities to negotiate and to come to mutually agreeable solutions as much as possible. Uh, I think it's really clear when you get to the point where you have an entire section of your city desire to cede from your city and no longer wants the police inside of that little area, then uh, 
there's a clear need to do some discovery and figure out what kind of forces are at work that have led us to this situation. So if, if that's already happening in your community and there's anything you can do to help, then maybe you should. Like we need to start doing discovery and, and opening some dialogue because the other way it could get resolved is through violence, which doesn't yeah. serve anybody, right? Definitely but here's the, here's the thing. Like if you're sitting right now, like maybe, I, I mean, I live way out in the country in a, in a very stable state that I happen to really love. Uh, but if, if you don't have that going on right now, you shouldn't be like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a Seattle problem. Like, there are disaffected people in your community. And if you're not opening lines of dialogue and discovery, if you're not engaging them in a really healthy discussion of what is best for our society, our little corner of it, right, then there's nothing that prevents you from experiencing the same thing that Seattle happens to be experiencing now and Hong Kong has experienced multiple times in the last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. uh, this is when people don't feel like they can get things through a, a civilized process. They'll use a different process. Correct. Now, there's a lot of things that you uh, both of you said, uh, which we could definitely continue talking about, about the situation in Seattle. And uh, like you said, it doesn't have to be just a Seattle problem uh, because uh, it could, unfortunately, it could probably migrate into other cities uh, around, around the U.S. But let's, let's take a, a step back. Negotiation. A lot of people have make considered a negotiation uh, to be a conversation between two people. And again, I don't want to put, I don't want to dive too deep into the, the definition of it myself. But let's have a conversation about what is negotiation from your, your perspective. Because I believe the the question that I asked you both of you pretty much outlined a couple valuable principles that should be considered when we're thinking about negotiation in itself. So Dan, what do you uh, what do you make of the word? negotiation well, it's and, definitely win-win right alan <laughs> he was he was <laughs> it's a uh, negotiation i think alan and i will give you a very similar definition it's it's um negotiation is a process by which two or more parties come to a mutual agreeable solution mm -hmm. um and it's got to be fairly broad because what we're solving or what we're re resolving could be a, a huge range of different disputes. As a hostage negotiator, obviously that we're negotiating the resolution of, of this critical incident. But as a business coach working with my clients, we're resolving all kinds of different contracts and change orders and uh, disputes between clients and prospects and also internal negotiations, resolving disputes with our colleagues and our bosses and our direct reports. So uh, negotiation, actually maybe most important in the home where we're coming to mutually agreeable uh, solutions for disagreements within the family right how the family should run and what level of uh what level of autonomy my 14 year old daughters have like that's a negotiation <laughs> so but we want to use a process where people feel like they they have input and they can they can not only live with the results like that result is something they created and therefore something they'll honor are you, Alan, do you have any, uh, 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 I'm assuming you have synergy with what Dan just mentioned. Is that correct? Yeah, I'll just add that uh, everything he said, uh, I, I, I totally agree with. Uh, in terms of the definition, I'll just add that it's just giving the other party to reject you, to, to say no to you, to, to feel safe enough to stop the negotiation or take it to a new direction if they want to. 
uh, is to give the other side a sense of control, not trapped. Then, then you're not negotiating, you're dictating, right? So, I agree. So, so it's definitely safe, uh, and it's definitely safe to actually allow the the other party to say no. It's not, it's not a negative to say no. Yeah, if they don't think they can say no, then you don't have mutual agreement. Even if they signal that that they're agreeable, if they didn't get a chance to say no or they felt like they couldn't, that's just leverage, and you won't have a long-lasting agreement. So, yep, we agree on on that. What's interesting, Luis, is to think about what – I mean, that's great. Everybody's like, I mean, who wouldn't say that, right? Well, there yeah. are some people that wouldn't, but most people say, yeah. But the, then if you, um, if you go a little deeper with that definition, there's some things then that Alan and I would say are not negotiations. Like and, what exactly? Uh, I think other people might really – they would wrestle with that a little bit intellectually. Like so I don't exactly? think like I don't think that negotiation is settling or compromising. Uh, for instance, I don't think that negotiation can be defined as win-win, and I don't not even like can't be like it's wrong. Can't be because it's dangerous. It is dangerous to look at negotiations as win-win. Alan, what do you think? I think I think you're becoming more and more like me on a on a daily basis. I love that. I love him more and more. It's like a it's it's like a stepbrothers who meet and then it's like they now have a a closer relationship. Well, the way I look at it is like, and and I agree with Dan. However, I just I want to add one more word to it, which is unnecessary. Unnecessary, okay. Well, sometimes we do compromise in business. But my job is when by the time a client hires me is they're tired of making compromises. By the time they come to Dan and they come to Alan, they go, you know what? I feel like I, I, I don't mind giving giving up. Like if, if uh, one of my clients may go, you know what? My time is worth millions. So when a, one of my customers says, uh, I want to, they're trying to negotiate a $10,000 like a difference in a deal. He would just go, yeah, no problem. To him is not a compromise. It is a compromise when they feel they're uncomfortable and they've kind of like put in a corner and someone is using leverage and power and coercion to make them do something they don't want to do. When they're tired and they're sick of it, they no longer want to do it. They come to Dan and they come, come to me. What do I when do? People say yes to make the problem go away. That's compromise. And it leads to all kinds of problems. And it, you could be the one having to say yes and where you, you feel resentment. Or you could be the one, knowingly or unknowingly, getting somebody else to compromise, and then you wonder why the relationship and the deal fall apart. But it's that resentment. It's the dissatisfaction with the process. For years, so, I've been kind of like just uh, beating on the drum that we should stop thinking of win-win. And I'm not saying that we should take advantage of other people because there are some negotiators out there that say, you know what? Yes, we don't agree with win-win. We agree with win-lose. We win and they lose. And that is a completely invalid way to look at negotiation. I'll tell you why. And I've said it, and I could not say it any better than Simon Sinek said recently. Business and life is a game of infiniteness. Winning and losing is a game of finiteness. Meaning that if I was playing soccer with you, we, someone has to win and someone has to lose. In business, it's about being staying in the game as long as I possibly can. So if I'd have no deal with you right now, we may have a deal down the road. It just means not now. It means I'm not able to solve your problem right now. It's not a win or a lose. 
So when salespeople bring me in to train the team, and one of the things they like saying is like, I won this deal, I lost this deal. I always ask, you lost a deal? Did you have it to begin with? No, then what did you, what did you, when you win it, were you competing with someone? Did you compete against that customer to win his business? No, you didn't. You were, it's a matter of moving your efforts and your mission and purpose forward. Were you able to move those, uh, your, your, your MMP forward? Were you able to move your efforts forward by helping them, right? So if we look at that framework of win-win and win-lose, how can we shift the mindset from a, from a win-win to what exactly? Good question. So that's a completely invalid way of looking at yes. it. Yes. Go, yeah, it's the wrong it's way. The game. It's You're wrong playing, way. Talk to me. Talk it's to like me. trying to play, it's like trying to play soccer in a basketball court. It's a completely different game. All right, so talk when, to me. Go simple. ahead, Dan. It's too simple. That's the problem. So negotiations, describing as a process, we already did that. But now let's talk about like what it looks like. It's a it is a complex human performance art form. And so what we try to do, I just posted today on LinkedIn about this, is human beings have a natural desire to oversimplify things. We take complex systems and complex processes, and there's a temptation just to, to boil them down to maybe the most important things, or the, at least the most agreeable things, and say it's this. All right, so I look at negotiations. It seems kind of complex. There's just all this back and forth. There's all these different techniques that people advocate for. I'm just going to view it as win-win. I just find out what they want. I tell them what I want. We pick the best thing. It's done. And that's, first of all, that that's dangerous. Yeah. That, it leads to all kinds of problems. It, that's, it's like my children like to look at the finances of the house and be like, Dad, you always have money in your wallet. Just buy me this. And I'm like, that's not how any of this crap works, right? <laughs> so we, what, what we want to do is instead look at negotiation since it is a complex human performance art. How do humans get good at complex performing arts? Well, it's a craft process. So you understand the fundamentals of your, your, your craft form, right? You go find people that are already excellent and you learn from them at their feet. I mean, and then you do it. I mean, the only way you get good at something like negotiations is by doing negotiations. You can read all the books in the world and you'll know a lot about negotiations. And then it's like the American philosopher, Michael Tyson said, then you go into the room and you got a great plan and somebody punches you right in the face, right? I mean, everybody's got a great plan until they get punched in the face. That's yeah, my yeah. And that's the thing is it, so you need to go in and get punched in the face a couple of times. And I did that as a police negotiator for years. Like I had great coaches. They were all on meth, but I mean, they were very honest with me. Like Alan will talk about, you need a coach who's kind of a little bit, a little bit tough. Who's going to be like, that's not going to work. Or here's where you're making an error, right? And I had that in spades. And so at the end of the day, it's, since it's so complex, you just have to get comfortable with the complexity instead of trying to oversimplify things. If you think that negotiations is just a, a bag of tricks, like a bag of techniques or tactics that I deploy, then you'll fail because you'll run into somebody that's got better tactics. What you want is a habit of the right sorts of human activities that can make up negotiations. So, so one thing that you're that I'm thinking about as you're as you're describing the complex human performance art, uh, it's it's like uh, just exercise, right? Uh, so I've been I've been focusing in, the, in this time during the quarantine on physical fitness, 
uh, something that I've been doing all my life, but now I'm really hyper-focused on it. And uh, on Instagram, I, a couple of uh, weeks ago, days ago, I actually posted a simple, a simple post on there that said, if you want to get better at push-ups, you have to do push-ups. <laughs> or you have to do other things that are going to strengthen your upper body, your strength, your strength in your mind. And, it, you know, you could walk into, like you said, you could walk into that room uh, and, uh, and if you've never done any type of negotiation at all, or then you're just going to fail drastically, right? So the same thing goes for, for exercising. It's, you know, it's just because you're thinking that you're going to go running. Yes, you could go buy yourself a high-performance uh, pair of sneakers. Yes, you could go buy yourself the best uh, uh, shorts out there. But unless you actually do some certain things outside of the uh, world of running to actually get ready for that, you're going to have a tough time. And you're going to probably say you, you're going to be unmotivated to, to go one extra mile because you're facing all these different an uphill battle. So I think that's kind of what you're saying right there with the complexity of, of negotiation. You have to also understand the, the uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the human perspective as well, right? Because that's kind of the active listening that you were talking about before. Well, let me add something to this. I think, I think it depends on what we want to accomplish. Uh, I've recently, I've talked to a, a CEO lately and, uh, and he wanted to learn how to negotiate, but then you know what? He was very frank. We had a great conversation and he said, Alan, I don't want to master negotiation. I don't have time for that. I'm already good. I'm quite good. I just oh. need someone like you in my corner, <laughs> okay. right? I just need someone like you in the corner so I can bounce ideas off of, okay? I want my team to be good. I want my team, I want my COO, and I want my director of uh, VP of sales to learn how to negotiate so they can train other people. I don't have time for that. I don't even have one hour a week to, 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 to learn this, but I need you to be on call. If I have a big problem, I need to be able to call someone, yeah. right? So it depends on what you want to achieve. It comes down to what you said earlier. It's like, like a game, right? So when I grew up in Africa, everyone plays soccer. But when I was growing up, we didn't have a soccer ball. You know what the kids did? We wrap a sock inside a sock, inside a sock, inside a sock until the sock got really big. That was a soccer ball. Very ghetto. Very, very ghetto. Effective as well. Oh, and, yeah. And I mean, it's already, it, 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 it works, right? It works. And, 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 uh, and, and, and almost every Ghanaian boy knows how to play soccer really well. And However... Without coaching and training and having a process, they can play really well. Without coaching, can they ever be like Ronaldo or Messi or someone like that, right? Really not. You can give me a stick and I can hit a golf ball or like a pretend ball, a plastic ball, and I'll, I'll call it golfing. I'll follow some golfing processes, but put me next to Tiger Woods and let's see what happens, right? So you have to ask yourself, what do I want to accomplish? Do I want, do I want to accomplish... Do I want to pursue excellence or do I just want to be functional in negotiation? Yeah. Functional. Yeah. I just want to be functional. Yeah. So here's a question. Why is it so hard for people to, to really get the concept of negotiation? And here's another side of the question. Why is it so hard for people to actually listen in a negotiation? Because active listening is, is critical, which is three different Maybe the same question, I guess, that I'm asking, but just framing it different ways that would be, the listeners could could see what, where I'm going with this. Why is it so hard for people to really understand the the the, the framework that you, both of you have laid out? Why is it so hard for people to listen? And then, what's the challenge of active listening? Dan, this is all you, buddy. Yeah. So negotiations are different and distinct from listening. And while negotiations are complex, and this is I, this can be controversial because 
because it's really hard. So people think it's complex. Listening is very simple. Like listening well is simple. Uh, it's just really, really hard. Nearly impossible, you might say. Uh, but there's a special relationship between listening and negotiations. I consider listening the most important uh, constituent skill of negotiations. I think if you're a great, like a fantastic listener, you're going to be a really good negotiator. There's still some things you should work on to improve your negotiation ability because it's very complex. But back to listening. Oh, oh, the reason why people don't, it's very simple. Why do people not get good at negotiations? They don't put in the work. Okay. Can I they read a book, they see a technique. Like, oh, anchoring, no problem. They go down, they wander down to the used car lot, find a car they want, and they try to anchor the salesperson low, right? And But what happens is the, the salesman preempts them. Like, so they're like, oh, I'm going to offer like $5,000 less than the sticker price. And the, the guy's like, hey, you like this car? By the way, this is the best car. This is the best price we can do on this car. We don't haggle at all here. I, I'm not commissioned. And you're like, oh. And then you try it anyhow, but you don't do five. You're like 2,000 under. And they're like, and then they, they react. They're like, did you not hear what I said? Like, it's very rude of you to offer so low. This is a really fair price. And we don't haggle here. I told you that. You know, why principles trump techniques you yes. can learn and, and like all the negotiation books out there, 99% or more are based on techniques, based on techniques, tactics and techniques. And it will only take you so far because under what circumstance do you use which technique? Yeah. Right. And, and, and they do, they cancel it. It's like, so in your mind, it's a chess game, but it's not, it's not. Hmm. Because habits always trump tactics. Ha uh, strategy always trumps technique. So anyhow, why do people not get good at negotiations? They don't put in the hard work. They don't take the time to make it a craft, and they don't practice, right? Why do people not become good listeners? Because they're selfish. It's that simple. It's, I, I hate to boil it. Again, I'm the first guy to tell you. If it's not simple, don't make it simple. But I just, in 10 years of really intensive corporate coaching of active listening techniques, coaching people to be better listeners, and then also like struggling with myself to become a better listener on my own, and then coaching and building teams of crisis negotiators for police departments, like uh, screening, selecting, training, and mentoring those people, what gets in our way is ego. So awareness is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see that awareness is probably one of the most important parts, meaning that you have to be personally aware that, yes, I'm hearing you, but am I listening to what you're saying? Yeah, right? you, have to, you have to view listening not as a process uh, where you get served. You have to view listening as it is, uh, it's a storytelling opportunity for the other person. You get paid on the back end because you learn so much about them, right? So but if you're people, trying to get, if you're trying to wring information out of people, you're not a good yeah. listener because hmm. you will ask bad questions. There's something you want to know and you'll ask about it instead of just letting them tell you what's important. So would you say silence is a good tactic in active listening? I would say silence is a really important component of good listening. Okay. What are the other, uh, what are the, what are the other ingredients, I guess? Of, Asking of great questions reflecting upon the message, clarifying what they mean, summarizing their positions and interests, uh, accepting nothing at face value, uh, moving at their pace and uh, letting them get to a place of safe. Like this is what Alan and I agree on. We really struggled with trust, Alan and I, because I really think trust is important. 
And Alan's like, it's not. You don't even need it. And I'm like, you're crazy. And he's like, you're crazy. And then we came to understand that we were defined. Like, we look at trust in two different ways. Because if I told him, Alan, you need to get your counterparty into a position of safety where they can disclose to you. And you can explore through discovery their pain. He would say, yeah, if you're not doing that, you're not, you're not even negotiating yet. And I'm like, I agree. And then I would add, I don't really trust anybody I negotiate with as a police negotiator. Because generally speaking, they're either committing crimes or they're uh, in a really bad place of therapy for a severe and persistent mental illness to the point where they're violent. I don't get involved unless one of those two things is happening or, by the way, both. So I, I can't put the ultimate decisions and control of the situation into their hands. I have to create a perception of safety for them so that we can collaborate. So, and again, I've spoken for Alan, which I do all the time, and I'm always right. But Alan, what did I get wrong? No, I'd like to hear your perspective because I, uh, as Alan knows, I had a conversation with Gary Nestor, um, which thank you again for for connecting me, uh, connecting me to him. But trust, what what is because he, we spoke about trust, uh, Gary and I, a lot uh, in the conversation. Um, so, what is your perspective on trust? Well. Uh, you know, G Gary is a is a fantastic guy. He's one of the one of the best negotiators I know. Apart from Dan, Gary is my mentor. Um, and and he and I have very similar uh, uh, understanding of trust. So Gary will first talk about authenticity, right? Integrity. So because of that, the other party will trust him. The other party will trust him. But would he, as a as a hostage negotiator, trust the other party? Just read his book, Stalling for Time. Read his first sure. story, the story about Charlie. Charlie was going to kill his his wife and kid, and they knew it. And so, what happened is finally they had to make a call, and they had to take him down. Right. So, so as a as a hostage negotiator, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak for Dan. Your job is to help the other side feel comfortable and feel safe, so they trust you. But you have to have integrity. But would you ever trust the other party? Would you ever say, you know what? You told me you're going to let the guys go if we back off. So since I trust you, I'm going to get all the police to go back home, go back to the police station. When you're good and ready, you will let the people go and you'll come into the, to the police station and turn yourself in. Would that ever happen? Never. Never. So you want to create the conditions where the other party trusts you, but you don't have to trust them, right? So in business, I've said the same thing. I'm not saying that when people, when I say I don't need trust, people immediately go, Alan, I've read so many books that the only way people do business with you is they like and trust you. That's not true. Not true at all. I don't need trust doesn't mean I don't want trust. I would like the other person to trust me. It's great because it goes faster. But the reason that my client have me come in and help them is because the other party, their customer, no longer trusts them. If you rely on trust, trust breaks down very quickly. If you miss one, pay one payment, you miss one shipment that holds up a 300-acre a, a uh, campus, when you, you ship something so late that now you, it's costing your customer hundreds of thousand dollars an hour waiting for your part, they're not going to trust you anymore. But they'll still do business do. with you. They'll still do business with you. But now they're going to go, are you sure you're going to ship it? Can you send me that bill of lading? Can you send me the, the, the proof of, uh, of, uh, of shipment? Can you give me the tracking number? Why? They no longer trust you. 
but I still going to do business with you? Yes. So ideally, you have trust, but trust takes a long time to build. So when yes. people say, uh, uh, we only do business with people we like and trust, therefore make the other person trust you, that is exactly why salespeople use manipulative methods to get someone to like them because in the back of the brain, people think like equals trust. And they'll say, oh, I went to that car lot and I saw that guy, Dan Oblinger. I trust him. And my question would be, based on what? Hmm. Have you bought a car from him that hasn't fallen apart? Have you bought anything? Has he proven anything to you? Has he even shown <laughs> you that he's a reliable and consistently loving father? Ooh, that's tough. You know, right? I, uh, as you started talking before, Dan, uh, on the uh, auto, on the car purchase, and now Alan also piggyback off of that. I started, I started to chuckle when you started talking about it, but last time we spoke, uh, Alan and I, uh, so I spent 10 years, a decade working in the Mercedes. auto Mercedes. So in the automotive business, uh, and in the in the headquarters. So, you know, it's 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 funny and it sucks at the same time that it's just like the auto business always gets this this uh this this rap. But hey, it's true, right? You walk in you walk a used in, car, so Luis, you're probably selling new cars, right? Negative, sir. I actually uh, oh! started off no. <laughs> How did we get uh, on the line with a used car salesman, Alan? So, <laughs> yeah, no, you guys it, you guys get a bad rap. Yeah, no, no, no. It's already cool. So uh, basically, my my job at, uh, throughout the whole decade was essentially creating strategies uh, on on how to sell more uh, use certified uh, pre-owned vehicles okay. and also pre-owned vehicles. So, uh, anywho, which you just did part of your strategy right there, right? No, like part time. <laughs> not a used Mercedes. This is a certified pre-owned. Luis is part time uh, Mercedes sales uh, sales guy. He used to. But then he was also their Formula One race car driver. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. That was, that was uh, my. That was I, my I made fun life. of it. I was like, "Man, you look like Lewis Hamilton, big time." <laughs> <laughs> so, let's go back to the uh, to the listening, right? Active listening, and the you also spoke about the 28 laws of listening. Sure. Uh, I know we, we don't have probably all day long to, to, to tackle each one, but right. can, you just, can you just highlight uh, whatever, whichever ones you can, the genesis behind the 28 laws of listening, both the book and also the, the concept and give us probably like the top three, I guess. So I, I had people, it, it was a genesis, so it came out of the speaking first. So I was speaking before I wrote any books and uh, the workshops basically led me to write the life or death listening. Uh, book because we talked about like the, the core skills the approach you know all the, the fundamentals the eight active listening skills that hostage negotiators like that's our bible like we that's what we sleep with at night instead of teddy bears is the eight active listening skills because they, they work so well they meet people where they're at and let them tell their story and we earn we earn their trust right um but then i would go to do a keynote and i had a couple keynotes that were they were great everybody was happy but i, I I was like, you know, I'm trying to shoehorn a workshop into a keynote and it doesn't work. So I was like, well, what are like, what are the takeaways then? Like, what are some easily remember, you know, like e easy to remember lessons about listening? So my keynote basically became this series of almost like mantras, but basically just like stuff you can really rely on. Like the, the most important things to know about listening and, and building trust with people. And what's funny is I would never want to do the same one 
two, same speech twice in a row. So for every every client, I'd come up with maybe something new or a twist, right? For okay, there these are used car salesmen. Okay, well let's let's add one for them. Like that, I think would okay. be really relevant, right? And so eventually, I had like fifty of these things, and uh, I was like, ah, okay, this is a book. But then I'd already written the first book, so and in fact, a lot of the stuff was stuff I chopped out of the first book, saying this is great, but it it is not didn't fit, you know. I had a great mentor who talked about writing a book. He says, sometimes you will draw the picture of an arm and it's the perfect arm, but it just doesn't go on the person you're drawing. So you need to cut off your best arm. Well, I had cut off like 20 of the best arms. And I was okay. like, this is a book. If I just make it like a 28 day program and every day there's this really core lesson and then there's homework, like go start a conversation about this and try that with, with somebody, with a total stranger at the grocery store, wherever, right? This is pre-COVID. But, uh, <laughs> thank, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> so yeah, so what I did was these 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 helped form the the backbone of all my keynotes, and so I just picked the twenty eight best ones. Some of them coming out of the book that that had to be cut, but some of them coming out of my keynote, and and I made I made twenty eight laws of listening, and they're laws because um, for better or for worse, I'm classically trained as a, a Thomistic philosopher. That's a totally I see that. podcast, I see right? That. So so in 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 that from that school, laws are not evil. Laws are not like authoritarian and oppressive. Uh, they begin with the natural law. So, for instance, gravity is a law. When you, and you literally, it's the man keeping you down. But uh, you have to respect it. And it, the more you respect and cooperate with the law of gravity, the better your life is. For instance, don't go jump off the Royal Gorge, right? I mean, you can rebel against that law all you want. And if you don't respect the natural order of things, if you don't respect what and who people are, then you'll get into trouble. And so the 28 laws of listening are not like, you must do this. It's like, no, this is how things work. So if you can cooperate with, with nature, if you can cooperate with the reality, then you're not, first of all, you're sane. That's the definition of insanity, by the way, right? Is uh, not understanding what things are and not being able to describe them truthfully, right? But, but then also you'd be really effective as a listener and a communicator and leader. So that's why that book exists. Uh, one, here's one, here's a great example of one. Uh, and it speaks to the need to, to really appreciate people. If you want to listen to them, it's really hard to fake it. Like listening is not something you can fake until you make. And Alan will tell you that authenticity and integrity. If you don't have that, people smell it really fast. So uh, this was a sign in the Roman Catholic Seminary where I studied. It was on the vice rector's door. And I'll never forget the sign or the man because he lived it. But the, 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 one of the laws of listening in the book is that which you despise in others is that which you despise in yourself. Repeat that one more time. That, that you which despise. you despise in others is that which you despise in yourself. Okay. So we are very quick to find the faults that we possess in other people because we can recognize them so well. Because we struggle with them, right? Or we're, we're afraid of them or have anxiety about them or, or are embarrassed by them. So we see it in others and we're fast to call it out in them. So as a listener, right, we see that other people are bad listeners. Like they ask us poor questions or talk over us or interrupt us. But then that should be as, a, as if you want to become an excellent listener, instead of being frustrated by that, it should be a really helpful, almost like it's an unintentional coaching tip from that person to you. Remember this feeling of resentment you just got? Okay, don't do that to other people because they feel that too. Hmm. You know, uh, I wanted to also address uh, the the uh, your background 
uh, as you saw in the outline that I provided you. Um, but like you said, that could, that could be for a whole different podcast because that right there, could, we could have a, a whole day seminar or conversation on it, right? Um, on morality, ethics, and so on and so forth. Uh, but one of the things that, that, that struck me about the, the way that you're looking at the law of listening is that uh, I'm an ultra marathon runner. I like going in, into nature and I like just to, uh, to go out there and into the wild for, you know, for countless hours, sometimes for, for a long time, for a long time. <laughs> <clears throat> and one, th- and one of the races that I did was a Vermont 100, 100 miles in, in one day under 24 hours to see, you know, uh, it, can you make it on the 24, day, 24 hours? One thing that I learned the hard way in one of the races that I did was before that was the Glear 100, which was basically 100K uh, in the Great Lakes in Upper New York. And, uh, I, and I knew this very well because as a, as a Marine, as a former Marine, you have to respect nature. You have to respect nature. So, so there, there is a law of, of basically respecting nature, right? And um, one of the races that I did, I basically just said, what the heck with this, it's hot and I'm just gonna go you know, boss of the wall. Well, that had a basic under, uh, fatal effect on me. Uh, not a fatal effect, but it just—it just—it it was just not uh, uh, good results. Fast forward to the Vermont 100, uh, and that one right there, I applied the laws of that, that that we're talking about right now, which was to respecting nature. And I approached this other runner and I said, "Hey, listen, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We're going up a hill." And I'm just literally trotting up of it, and he's just like balls to the wall. Up, yeah. and I'm like, man, I, I got it. He was smoking it. it. Yeah. It was just that he had a great pace, and I and I kind of just said, "Hey, uh, can you just can you just slow down a little bit? Let's just talk." I just try to have a conversation with him, which he, you know, he abided. He started walking a little bit, and I was asking for his name, just to literally just controlling the situation without him obviously uh, uh, anticipating what I was. Doing. But he said, "Hey, I gotta go. I gotta make it under twenty four hours." I'm like, "Dude, we just started this thing at four o'clock in the morning. You have all day long, and it's just eleven o'clock. Peak of the summer. Peak of the summer. Peak of uh, if you've been to Vermont." It's yeah. brutally hot in the in the summer. Humid. Humid. Uh, long story short, by the time we 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 approach the, the evening, the sun is out, moon is out. It's probably like at least two o'clock in the morning, and he is just like laying on a on the ground after like 60, 70, uh, 70 miles of just running. And I just stopped, and I was afraid because I was just like, "What's wrong?" He's like, "I, I can't go any further. I should have listened to you because now I'm I'm dehydrated." He didn't respect the law that that, yeah. that, we're, that that we're talking about right now. So, anyways, the, the point is, although you you may hear that the loss of listening, don't get afraid that hey, it's a law. I have to abide by it. It's more of a, I guess, a way of understanding the complexity of what it is with the act of listening and whatnot, right? Okay. And it's also kind of a not an homage, the opposite of that, to the the, the forty six laws of power. Um, I'm not a fan. It's a it's an intriguing read. Uh, like the guy has a very clear perspective on people. It's not unique though. It's not a new perspective. If you read Machiavelli, like it's, it's a rehashing of that, uh, but it treats people like objects and the, the laws of listening, if they're respected means you're treating people uh, as they ought to be treated as somebody that is equal in dignity to you and potentially has a lot to teach you. So I think, yeah. I, I think I, I'm looking forward to your, to your next book, Dan. All right. Well, it, it's, 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 it's coming. <laughs> It's called, it's called, it's called the, the 28 Laws of Listening in the Time of a Pandemic. It's actually going to be a victim of art, a memoir uh, from the partner of Alan Zhang. <laughs> so the reason, why, <laughs> the reason why I came up with that, with that, uh, with that uh, uh, bogus uh, title, uh, which obviously you could definitely take Right, it. I could, yeah, I could, I could use it. 
because it's yours, right? But no, in all seriousness, one of the things is that you said, uh, you know, a daily task is go out and speak to a stranger. Yeah. How, how can we take one of those concepts now that you wrote pre-COVID and apply them into a time where going forward, maybe hopefully anytime soon in 2020 or 2021, when people can actually go back out there and give Alan a big hug or give you a handshake and not be afraid of like, oh crap, now I have COVID-19. Yeah. Well, anyways. Uh, so- I think the stakes are higher. And I think Alan has a lot to say here on this because he and I have both really made an effort to turn our business into something that is web-based. I see that, people, yes. People are starved for community and they're starved for dialogue and discourse. And we have lots of crap to talk about right now, like really important stuff, right, that affects everyone. So the this concept of encountering people and, and engaging them in storytelling, their story, not ours, is even more relevant now. Even if we can't meet in person, we can do it just like we're doing it right now, Luis. And so I've, I've seen Alan doing this uh, in link, on LinkedIn uh to a very high level of fidelity it's pretty it's pretty impressive alan give me some pointers here well okay. yep yeah, the no, thing he's, is he's uh thinking. during, during the the pandemic i i hate to first uh, say this um if people are not dying and suffering this is my ideal way of life meaning that everywhere <laughs> i go people have to disinfect and be sanitary i go to a lot of places and i just go i can't stand how unclean people are whether it's the airport or the airport bathrooms or on the airplane, I just like people putting their feet up. And it's like, now it's like, this is great creating like personal space, uh, you know? And so in terms of travel, in terms of interaction, it's great. It's great for me. But coming back to our practice during this, this pa- pandemic period is how can we connect with people on a deeper level because we're missing almost a three-dimensional level. When I look at you guys right now, it's two-dimensional. In three dimension, we have a, an additional addition that I call that is not actually talked about a lot, and it may be kind of creepy, but when we're in front of someone, our brain actually process smells, right? You're in a new place in a coffee shop, you shake a hand, there's actually proof of the research talking about people, how they sniff their hands after they shake someone because they can sense chemicals and stuff in there there's another dimension in our brain that we process information three-dimensional uh your body language the 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 rate at which it it moves is different on uh, on zoom because there's like a microsecond behind in real life that's not there right that that this this uh, lag is not there um so other than that, we have to learn to really, what Dan would like talking about, listen to people's story. What is their pain? What is their struggle? I don't need, my business doesn't need direct interaction. I've been coaching people remotely for the last 14, 15 years. It was Skype before it was Zoom, right? Um, and so occasionally I'll meet one with a, in a coffee shop or I'll, I'll have an office in my client's place. And I love that. Uh, moving forward, if I don't ever travel again, that's okay. But I do like to travel and I feel bad for people that live, they live up by themselves in an apartment. They're single people. Um, I have a family and like Dan, I have a family of uh, six kids. So uh, I still have kids that live with, with us. So there's a lot of interaction that way. Um, so other than that, I think this, this uh, pandemic has been good for, for what I do. And uh, I just use what I do well 
to help other people that ha- are forced to have to have interactions with other people, right? And how to connect deeply, how to care deeply. And integrity is about having congruency between what you say and how you behave. And Dan t- said it earlier, people can sniff it. Do you really care? And so now you have to express that through a medium that is limiting that, the smell, mm-hmm. the three-dimensional. And so the more skills you have, the better you are at listening and asking powerful questions, the better you are going to be at connecting with them at a deeper level. And people are under incredible pressures that it doesn't translate very well two-dimensionally. Uh, it's hard to see what's going on in their life, but we uh, people have a pretty strong reaction to to the to pandemic. Then they have a st- different, differing, and potentially you know incongruent re- reactions to the government restrictions of COVID. And then we have social unrest on top of that. And I I've been dealing with people, and I I've learned that the listening and discovery process is even more important now. To find um, out where they're coming from. Yes, you know, back to what you both of you are saying right now, especially uh, uh, what you just mentioned right, right now, Dan, you know, I started off the conversation with talking about some of the, uh, uh, I guess, some of the uh, things that are happening in the United States right now. And I just pointed out Seattle as an example of uh, what could hopefully would not happen around the United States, but just just as, a, as, a, as an opener to this conversation. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, and your both of your comments kind of bring me back into my when I was in the, in the Marine Corps. Uh, like I mentioned before, I was a uh, I was a Marine security guard working in both Moscow, Russia, and also in in, in, in Sarajevo, Bosnia. Wow. Um, and one of those things that they teach you there is de-escalating, right? Which is kind of what you just mentioned before uh, at the beginning. And you have to understand not jumping into conclusions. Uh, because obviously I don't look Russian, I, I, don't, I don't look Bosnian, but when, you know, you have to make an effort to make that connection, right? And back to that two-dimensional. But you look like a race car driver and that's all that matters. <laughs> that's all that matters. But, you know, when you have that person in front of you and you are at least bring a smile into your face, from you to, and display a smile, a smile. I know I know. for me, a smile went always a long way because people were, uh, you know, if I confronted somebody because they're having an issue or not, uh, as a Marine in the embassy that they didn't speak the uh, English, uh, I tried my best to, to speak uh, Russian or Bosnian, uh, but a smile went a long way because that diffused the situation so much, right? So I'm glad that you mentioned the all the crazy stuff that's happening, not, not just with the pandemic, the restrictions, now the you know the social uh, uh, unrest, I guess I could say, I guess with with uh, with uh, uh, with the killings uh, uh, over there in in Minneapolis. But yeah, the smile is like an instant signal that I am not threatening to you. Uh, as long as it's authentic, <laughs> there's a lot of studies on authenticity of smiles. Really, like some people, you can interpret a smile as a threat when it's inauthentic. Okay. Like a sneer, like a con- like a with contempt, right? Uh, so when, they- when, but when your eyes open up and your eyebrows lift, it is. Uh, so I, so for instance, my buddy, he's a he's an excellent interrogator, like excellent okay. criminal interviewer, and he he's a good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, and he knows the power of a smile for disarming people and building rapport. And, but what he learned is if he went in to talk to a murderer, 
he's like, how can I smile? So what he would do is he'd go to his workstation and play Borat. He'd play like a three minute Borat clip on YouTube. And he'd be laughing his he'd be laughing his face off. And then he would walk in with the afterglow of all that laughter about that funny okay. video. So the smile didn't have to do with the person he was dealing with, but he was genuinely overjoyed when he would walk in. And instead of diving into the work there, he would say he would walk in smiling and kind of chuckling and be like, hey, man, he would introduce himself and ask him what they wanted to drink and go get him a beverage. And that it was that that first impression. You learned it as a Marine guarding an embassy. I learned it as a hostage negotiator as a street cop. Alan learned it playing softball in Ghana, right? Is that, <laughs> that, that integral joy. People want to do business with people that are pleasing and pleasant. And why not, man, as a negotiator? Why not recognize the good things around you and let that be how you start relationships? You know, have you seen the movie Ser, uh, Serpen uh, Serpenko? Serpento? Man, I'm screwing this up. It's Al Pacino. Serpico, oh, man. Yeah, Serpico. Yes. Yeah. My, my bad. Al Pacino, <laughs> my bad. Yeah, Serpico. Uh, there's a scene. Have you seen that movie, Alan? No. All right, so correct me if I'm wrong here, Dan, but there's a, the whole movie is a, is a phenomenal movie. It's a very old uh, Al Pacino movie. Basically, he's a good cop, bad cop, right? He is the good cop going in. He is a child that grew up wanting to be a, a cop, and now he's going into a pre New York precinct where corruption was uh, huge. And uh, there's one there's one uh, uh, scene on there where there's a a, a, a perpetrator that's arrested and uh, he's being interrogated. And during that interrogation, he's just beaten up. Al Pacino walks in, Shepherdco walks in, and he sees that he wants nothing. Then the the cop, the interrogator, says, "Hey, you want some of this?" He's like, "No, no, no I, I just want to walk out." He walks out, and they're transporting all the prisoners, including this perpetrator, to a different prison. He requests to have a moment with that guy, and he goes and buys him some coffee. And that right there is a, is a powerful scene because instead of number one, you know that authenticity that he showed there, which is kind of what Dan was was talking about there, is that he could have easily. Uh, you know, bought into that, you know, just beating that, that perpetrator up while being uh, uh, interrogated. But he said, there's a different way of doing this. And that's by listening, talking, diffusing. And the guy even said, why the heck are you buying me a, a coffee? He's like, because I want to, I want to have a conversation. You know, I want to talk about this. Is That's a pretty powerful scene. This reminds me of, I did a workshop uh, with this attorney, Jeff Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked about the fact that I don't endorse the walk away tactic in negotiation. I said that is juvenile. That is uh, that actually when someone calls you on that bluff, you're going to lose a lot of control, power and credibility. And he chuckled and he says, yeah, we have a walk away. We have a walk away technique and this is how it goes. He said uh, one time he was in a negotiation and I think it was coming to an impasse. And so he pulled the walkaway plan, which was he got up and he goes, let's go for a walk. And then the owner, the, I guess the, the principal on the other side says me, he's like, no, no, I just want to walk with your attorney. So he and his attorney in this impasse went outside the building, took a walk around. And then when they came back, they were laughing and they were like, like it was jovial. And then boom, the impasse faded away. It's he said, that is the only good use of a walk away tactic, right? Because now you're still creating collaboration. You're breaking down walls. 
you're having conversation where people are listening. And when you're walking, there's, there's a psychological thing about when two people walk, it's almost like collaborative. When people come to an impasse um, and they go for a walk together and they start brainstorming, you see a lot of political leaders doing that. They go for a walk. When you don't walk with your enemies. Right. That's true. Especially when you're walking side to side. And so side by side. collaborative, yeah. like a collaborative movement. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, there's, there's time for different techniques, but that was an interesting one I wanted to share with you. Perfect. Now, speaking of techniques, I only I know we only have uh, probably uh, eight or eight or five or eight more minutes. I guess this question goes to both of you, Alan and Dan. What are some takeaways that you could provide as far as strategies and tactics that people could uh, incorporate into number one, identifying uh, their lack of listening capabilities, and what can they do to actually turn that into? into it, uh, uh, active listening, I guess. I got a fantastic one for you. Go ahead. I'm going to benefit your audience with something that is not out there at all right now. And this is what people will charge a lot of money. They pay hundreds and thousands, a couple of thousand dollars to have access to this kind of information. Dan and I have a negotiation tribe, free Q&A, on Fridays, not every Friday. Moving forward, we're going to be doing one every other Friday. Our schedule has been so packed right now. We were doing it every Friday, but moving forward, we can only do it every other Friday. It's completely free. If they wanna sign up, all they have to do is to connect with Dan or myself on LinkedIn. Let us know they're interested. We'll send them a link. They will be able to, we will be able to answer any questions about strategy and tribe just because they're audience of you. Of you. They can listen oh. to this, attend it, attend a Q&A. We can discuss any tactic. We can discuss any strategy. We'll validate it and see when it works, when it does not work. We'll talk about mindset. We'll talk about behaviors. We'll talk about strategy. We'll talk about tactics. Anything goes. I think we've been doing it 16 weeks. Is that right, Alan? 16 I think weeks. It's been, we've been doing this about 16 weeks. We've had like 15 four, sessions. Yeah, we've been doing it for yeah. four months. There's nonstop. 22 countries. Uh, I, think, I think we're almost at 40 states represented, and uh, several hundred people have yeah. started to come. So, so it's, it? a, it's a free community of people that are really interested in working on their craft as negotiators and listeners. So is there a website that people could go to and, and find, find? We'll give you a link to the show notes. Would that be cool? Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. I oh, know, so, definitely yeah. possible. Everything is possible, yeah. my friend. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so Alan, much. Is it... That's Alan's. Sorry? Mine is the word of caution, unfortunately. I wish I could be like, here's something free that's amazing. It'll change your life. But a word of caution is this. Um, there, there are plenty of interesting books on negotiation and I consider books knowledge and there's interesting Ted talks that you can watch about negotiation. Yeah. And I consider that knowledge and you can pay a lot of money to go to a, a one or two or three day workshop. And that's skills. They, they'll try to teach you. Hopefully they'll actually, I'll just, I'll just warn you. Some of them are all about knowledge. They just talk at you for three days. Uh, the good ones will try to get into skills, right? And, and, and in my workshop we do. And so does Alan. 
but that's not negotiation. Like that's that's that is disobeying Mike Tyson's law of excellence. If if all you do is skills under pressure, you'll, you'll revert back to whatever your natural habit is in communication and negotiation. And generally, what that's going to be, by the way, is emotional compromise. So that's mm. usually what no, most of us start with naturally to deal with a stressful negotiation. If all you have is knowledge, you will forget. If if you memorize the twenty eight laws of listening, but you didn't make them your habitude, when you had a really tough listening conversation with like your mother in law, you'll forget all of them. And you'll go right back to your the natural way you deal with stressful communication. You will tell her what you want and you'll tell her how she's wrong. You'll argue. Mm. So what we want, what we advocate is is we think that the missing ingredient for most people is coaching. coaching. For most people, you need to start with some knowledge, you need to learn some skills, and then you need to have a coach who helps you make those habits over time. There's no substitute for an excellent coaching regimen over time, beginning with good knowledge and good skills. And most people, they get right up to skills, they, they invest in that workshop, and they think they're good, and they file that certificate and that booklet on their desk, and they think they're a negotiator. And I would tell them, no, you're not. You've been to a workshop. There's a big difference. And here's the dangerous thing, is you can find people doing coaching right now that weren't doing coaching before, before COVID. Um, and you should, I mean, you might buy a pig and a poke if you just hire a coach without asking about their bona fides, you should really ask them like, what's your background? What's your, how do you define negotiations? How do you handle negotiation as a process, as a strategy and as a craft? Like, how do I become excellent? And have you done that? And have you helped anybody do that? You should ask all these questions and uh, you should really ask them about the coaching process. What do they think they, what are they going to use to help you become really good? And so just be, be aware that there are some people that are doing it because it's an income stream. And there are some people that do it, not just us, by the way, there's some other good coaches. I'm not going to name them because uh, they got to get on their own podcasts, but they're out there. They're very good. I would do, I would, I would, I would use them as a coach. I would, but I don't. And here's why. Ask the coach. Do you believe in coaching? Yes. It's critical. Yes. The only way I become a master is this. Yes. Okay. Who's your coach? That is powerful. This is how much we believe in coaching. Alan is my coach. Alan, who's your coach? Dan coaches me, and then occasionally I go to my mentor when That's I right. want to when when I need someone to talk to. So right. you always need someone who is better than you at certain areas. And and Dan is very tactical. I'll tell you that right now. Dan is super tactical. And when I co-coach with him, I learn a lot. Yep. You know, you so, know. Yeah, that's it, Luis. Just Buyer beware, do your homework, but if you're serious about making it a craft and making and achieving excellence, which by the way is never complete, just like running marathons and ultras, right? You're never done. Like, there's always something else you could do, but getting to that place where you can improvise, like once you're super creative at negotiations, is usually a good sign that you've achieved some level of excellence. Uh, if you're serious about that, you need to get a coach. You need to do That's some right. coaching. And let's face it, uh, when, when we look at our athletes, right, and uh, whatever it is, the NFL, NBA, MLB, they have coaches, and they're they great. They're, 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 they're great yeah, at what they we do. would say, oh, man, they're so good. I'm like, and they get coached. Exactly. So with that, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for, for uh, being present today. Dan, thank you so much. Alan, as well. Uh, so my name is Luis Ramirez on The Conversation. We're talking to Alan San and also Dan Albinger, both uh, negotiators, highly respected negotiators in their field. Uh, would you like to have uh, the audience uh, with one more uh, nugget of your expertise, I guess? 
Oh, be blessed and uh, don't negotiate like my stepbrother. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't, don't negotiate like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thanks, thank, you so, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Take care. Bye, guys.